Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with scientists and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. If you've been following along with us for season two, you'll see that we've been expanding our scope beyond just cannabis to cover the medical and therapeutic potential of a wider range of psychedelics like MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. We're seeing a lot of efforts around the world to decriminalize psychedelic medicine, so I really hope this will be a good resource to educate about the current state of science and research on these different types of medicine. In other news, we are on Instagram at cannabis underscore science underscore today. So find us there to ask any follow-up questions or to just join the conversation about some of the topics that come up on these episodes. And as always, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Today we are featuring Dr. Kellen Thomas, an Associate Professor of Clinical Sciences at Toro University, California College of Pharmacy, and a psychiatric pharmacist practicing in Oakland and San Francisco. In this episode, Dr. Thomas provides an overview of the latest clinical research on psilocybin, which is the active ingredient found in psychedelic mushrooms, as well as a few other classic hallucinogens. We talk about the chemical profile of various psychedelics, the psychological benefits of using these medicines, as well as some of the potential risks and side effects. We also discuss some of the preliminary research on microdosing, and he shares some of the potential cardiovascular risks that might arise with this practice. So if you are curious or interested in pursuing microdosing, I highly recommend this episode to learn about the latest research on this topic. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. And I'd love to start by hearing more about your background in psychiatry and pharmacology. And I, I know you have a long history of studying psychedelics. So where did your research journey begin for you? Yeah, so I've actually had an interest in psychopharmacology since probably even high school and would, had read Aldous Huxley in high school and some of his essays. And he had a lot of thoughts and opinions on the potential integration of something like psilocybin into society for end-of-life care, like in his novel, Island. And so that was something that always interested me. And then when I went to college, I studied chemistry and pharmacology. Um, and so, you know, continued on that. I thought I was going to do a neuropharmacology PhD, but after working in a lab, realized just the sort of the working with the animals and having to sacrifice the animals and sort of all the bench work and chemicals was not, not my cup of tea. So met someone and learned about the field of pharmacy, which kind of was a very applied version of pharmacology and was specifically interested in, in psychiatric pharmacy. So did all of my intern hours and then pursued a residency and board certification in psychiatric pharmacy, which isn't you know, such a common profession. There's maybe a, a couple, about a thousand or two people um, that have those credentials. So I work in you know, psychiatry environments and hospitals or clinics. Sometimes I'm working with another psychiatrist or sometimes I see my own clients as a psychiatric pharmacist with uh, collaborative prescribing agreements. So that's sort of how I got into the field. And then once I started to see that CIS was starting a program, a formalized training program, 
with mentorship and faculty that were from a lot of the clinical trials that were ongoing. That was how I got involved in that and wrote this, my first review paper in uh, 2017 and did this CIS certification program for a year where I you know, got to meet a lot of people that had done the clinical trials and found a mentor in Brian Anderson, who has done completed and published about the um, psilocybin trial for HIV AIDS survivor, long-term survivors, and uh, demoralization and using group therapy for preparation and integration to help improve demoralization scores in that population. So your first paper that you're referring to on this topic, was that the psilocybin-assisted therapy, a review of novel treatment for psychoactive disorders? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, was, I was aware when, the, when the, the Hopkins and NYU studies were going to be published and had been looking at the older studies. And so as soon as that came out, I kind of finished up a review, which is a good way, especially into my, my uh, pharmacy colleagues, uh, to get the you know get some new therapeutic out there. A lot of times when it's in these sort of phase two or maybe moving into phase three clinical trials before FDA approval, a lot of times people will write a review paper summarizing all the data so people can look at it very quickly and get a sense of of what's been happening in the field and how it might apply to psychiatric indications. So talking about the pharmacology of it, the pharmacokinetics of it. Um, what the outcomes were, that's a kind of a, a standard paper that, that people write reviews on in, in my field of pharmacy. Yeah, so let's talk more about this paper. And so it looks like you studied seven clinical trials that investigated psilocybin-assisted therapy as treatment for psychiatric disorders related to anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. Um, so... All of these trials that you looked at, it sounds like they all demonstrated reductions in um, reduction in psychiatric ratings, and most of the patients did were able to improve their symptoms of depression and anxiety. So, yeah, could you go more into kind of in this research and and what 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 did you learn and, and what were you surprised to learn from doing this? Yeah, so um, you know, the study I was most familiar with was. Um, Charlie Grobe uh, at UCLA Harbor and Alicia Danforth back in 2011 released a study, um, which was when I was back starting to do um, my residency at USC in LA County around that time. And so I was really interested in his work and, and how he approached this. And then I was seeing the, the newer data then, once I became faculty at Torrey University of California up in the Bay Area here, we was seeing that there's large effect sizes. It was just incredible how they were, you know, double, triple the, the, the effect sizes we would see for things like anxiety, depression. And the other thing that was so striking about this uh, sort of uh, cancer-related anxiety studies that that had been done at UCLA, NYU, and Johns Hopkins was not all these people even met criteria for a specific, you know, a full major depressive disorder or uh, anxiety dis like generalized anxiety disorder. So they weren't necessarily all meeting DSM criteria, which would be the way that people would be uh, approaching someone for treatment with our traditional 
uh, psychiatric therapeutics like SSRI to antidepressants, et cetera. So that was what was very striking to me was how they were seeing these large reductions even in patient populations that didn't have it. And then when the Carhartt-Harris paper came out showing uh, very large effect sizes and very high remission rates in, in just a couple doses of psilocybin, that made me really interested in, in sort of summarizing all this data and getting it out there. And the Johns Hopkins study, was that, that was like end of life patients or patients in? Yeah, people um, with, with cancer related anxiety mm-hmm. um, and depression, exactly. Mm-hmm. But they didn't necessarily have to have, you know, be diagnosed as depressed or a generalized anxiety disorder. It was essentially, you know, distress related to their, their diagnosis and prognosis. Right, right. I think that's really interesting just from doing some of these other um, interviews. Are, are you familiar with Gul Dolan, her work at all? Yeah, yeah. Her work's yeah. great. I've seen her, her yeah, present she, at some conferences. She did a really interesting study with octopuses, and, and her major takeaway there was that sometimes we put a lot of focus on, oh, it does this, you know, the, a, a psychedelic can have this exact effect on this region of the brain, and there's so much focus there. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so her study with octopuses was like, well, they don't have any of these regions of the brain and it's still changing their behavior. Right. So I think that's right. interesting when, when I just see that parallel or that connection, when you talk about, um, that you don't necessarily have to have, um, the, the, the brain of, of a person who's experiencing clinical depression in order to see these effects of the psychedelics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and yeah, the, the work of, um, the Olson lab at UC Davis and Robin Carhart Harris talks a lot about this too, is this neuroplasticity and, and Gould Olin says the same thing of their, the MDMA seems to be opening some sort of social learning opportunity. And there's a plasticity there that, that seems to be more fundamentally related to the serotonin 2A receptor in the serotonin system. So yeah, like you're saying, it doesn't have to be that it's always one region of the brain, or there's something very uh, fundamental and evolutionarily conserved about these serotonin receptors. Um, so it's fascinating to also just learn more about the serotonin system. And and David Nichols always makes the point that without without LSD, we probably would not have figured out what the serotonin receptor was or that serotonin was a neurotransmitter. Before that happened, there was essentially no field of molecular psychiatry. It took a few years after LSD where people were able to elucidate and figure out that serotonin is an uh, endogenous neurotransmitter in the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think we'll get more into that later, especially um, the importance of that receptor when it comes to to microdosing and chronic microdosing, because I know that was part of um, one of your more recent studies. Mm-hmm. But but before we go there, let's let's talk about some of the categories of different psychedelics, especially ones that people are more familiar with. And it, I know you've mentioned that classic hallucinogen psychedelics can be divided into two chemical categories. So could you explain the system of categorization and um, yeah, what, what differentiates different types of psychedelics? Yeah, so the, the most classic that people think of, especially for you know things like DMT and ayahuasca and, and psilocybin-containing mushrooms, 
those could be categorized in more of this tryptamine family. And there's a lot of different varieties. Um, the famous medicinal chemist that is just over the Oakland Hills from where I live uh, was his lab. Alexander Shulgin wrote two main books, tryptamines I've known and loved and phenethylamines. And so those are the two broad chemical categories that have slightly different structures. Um, so just from a chemical analysis of looking at the actual molecular structure, that's how I think about those two different categories. And then they can have, you know, the, the classic tryptamines very reliably have the more expected psychedelic effects, but some of them don't. And same with phenethylamines is more of the phenethylamines have less of the classic, you know, what we would expect from a psychedelic effect, but something like mescaline would be categorized as a phenethylamine and it has very powerful, you know, psychedelic effects. So there's these two categories and depending on how you can tweak the molecular structure and some of the functional groups and it adjusts how it fits in the binding pocket of the 2A receptor may have differences in, in what the, the end subjective effects are for people. So, but do both of these categories, I know we're speaking broadly, they both affect that same serotonin receptor? They can, yes. So the, In different the ways or, yeah. Yeah, the phenolphenes tend to have more of the serotonin reuptake and can also have actual disruption of vesicular monoamine transporter packaging. So it leads to a more broad flush of serotonin into the synapse. Um, while the tryptamines are very specifically only targeting the serotonin 2A receptor, but certain phenethylamines can also hit the same serotonin 2A receptor on the postsynaptic side. And how do you categorize psilocybin? Psilocybin is a tryptamine. Tryptamine? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to, um, just, given, just given that's not something we have talked about a lot on this podcast, I'm wondering if you can, um, yeah, talk about that kind of at, at a high level, psilocybin, for, for someone who's, who's not so familiar um, with, the, you know, with the substance and how, how it might affect the brain, whatever neural mechanisms are involved, but also um, kind of you know, some of these other observations that you've made from psilocybin from these, your clinical review of, of all these, or your, your review of all these different clinical studies. Yeah, sure. So, so psilocybin is contained in a, the most, you know, most typically the psilocybin species of mushrooms, but there's, there's many, there's, you know, over a hundred different mushrooms that could contain psilocybin. There's also some other constituents, like there is actual psilocin, baocysteine, uh, aeruginosin in some, so there's there there's a little bit, not as much as cannabis, but there's a few molecules, and so there's still kind of ongoing debate of of how potentially psychoactive those may be, um, but the the big one does seem to be psilocybin and psilocin, and psilocybin is very close mimic of your body's endogenous serotonin, um, so it's just a slight tweak different in terms of its molecular structure. And that allows it to, to be a mimic at certain serotonin receptors. The primary receptor that we think of 
um, in the brain is the serotonin 2A receptor as causing the classic psychedelic effects. And that's been ter- determined by the fact that when we block it with things like ketanserin or things that are very specifically block that, you, you negate all of the, the psychedelic effects. You no longer see psychedelic effects. Um, and then your body converts psilocybin into psilocin very rapidly almost so rapidly that it it can be difficult to detect um, much level of psilocybin in the body. So most of the actual chemical activity is coming from psilocin, which is what gets bioconverted into your body very rapidly after you take a dose of mushrooms, or in the case of these clinical trials, a synthetic psilocybin. And the advantage of psilocybin is it's more stable than psilocin. And this is a technique a lot of drug companies will use. They'll use a pro-drug for its stability, but then once it's in the human body, it gets rapidly converted to the active metabolite. Yeah, and before we get into some of the potential side effects or adverse effects of of using psilocybin, what would you most want um, someone who is newer to psychedelics or has no experience using psychedelics to um, to know about psilocybin? What, what do you think is, is really kind of important? Of course, we talk about the enhanced neuroplasticity that someone could experience, but yeah, what would you want, what would you want someone to know about it? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the effects, the classic psychedelic effects, I think it, it is very important to always talk to someone about the set and setting in which they would consume any psychedelic. Um, and also what's very tricky about mushrooms is People have a lot of opinions about how many grams or what's the right dose. The variability is extremely high in terms of depending on what strain of psilocybin mushrooms you have, even probably from batch to batch of growers could be variable. So yeah, the idea that there's, you know, this many grams is going to reliably produce this response I would say it is difficult um, to to prove that, and it's there's a lot of variability. So I'd want people to understand to think maybe you know start low and go slow with potential first experiences because you can't really be sure how much uh, psilocybin is actually in the mushrooms that people get unless you know some grower that's quantifying and doing all these things or places like uh, the Netherlands who have a commercially available retail product that people can go into a shop and purchase. Um, There you have a little bit more consistency. Um, But yeah, so that's what I would want people to know is you want to be in a a good, safe uh, set and setting. You want to have a a mindset that's very open to the experience. Um, Be, you know, feel like you're in a fairly psychologically somewhat stable place. and and be in a very safe place and um, have people around that are that can support you and also thinking about the preparation and integration I think those can't be underestimated of of your the way that people would prepare for a psychedelic experience um, to have all these effects of it can really you know change your insight about things can really uh, you know have some fearful moments I mean people high percentage of people experience transient anxiety and confusion and even 
sometimes frank psychosis as part of their sessions. But it, you know, you need a safe container to make sure that nothing untoward happens during the session. So there'd be some other things to think about. Yeah. And you mentioned, of course, there's a variety of different strains within psilocybin or a variety of different strains of mushrooms, of course. Do you know from some of these major studies, like the, let's say the Johns Hopkins study, were they, do you know what particular type of strain they were using? Was it the same across all patients or was there any variety in there? So all of the clinical trials have used synthetic psilocybin. So they have a known milligram quantity. Um, But in terms of what are people's best guess of how that would translate to something like a psilocybin cubenesis, maybe around uh, three grams of mushrooms is is roughly the type of dosing, two to three grams of psilocybin cubenesis would be, again, very roughly equivalent to the dosages used in the clinical trials. Because even within the clinical trials, because they've used weight-based dosing, there's been a variety of dose ranging. So people have gone from you know about 20 milligrams all the way up to 60 milligrams. So almost like a threefold range has been tested in these clinical trials so far. And was that based on weight and you know, yes. specific variables like specific to the patient? Yeah, the they would look the at trial. weight-based mm-hmm. dosing. Yeah, so they would pick, you know, 0. 0.2, 0.3 um, milligram per kilogram um, weight-based dosing. And what they really found, though, they, there's a great article that actually just came out very recently about, like, analyzing all the data from all the trials and essentially found that we don't, we probably don't really need weight-based dosing. When we look at the way that people experience the subjective effects, there's already a range. And you know, even from session to session, people could experience the same exact dose differently as well. So there's, there's a lot of variability and, and people are thinking probably it's more reasonable just to consider a fixed dosing. And certainly that's from an FDA standpoint, that becomes a lot easier to make a single product. So honing in on something like a 25 milligram dosage of psilocybin is probably um, what, what will ultimately end up getting approved. So in the handbook of um, medical hallucinogens, you wrote a chapter called Adverse Effects, which is looking to examine some of the potential side effects or adverse effects of psychedelics, which I think this is such important work. And it's really important to have these nuanced conversations. Like, of course, we've been in this era of prohibition for so long where psychedelics have been demonized um, for, for very non-scientific reasons, mostly political ones. Um, but but I, I do think this, this can be a, a challenging conversation, of course, because um, we do have to say, well, there are risks involved with putting anything into your body. So, um, yeah, so I'd love if you could kind of walk us through some of the most significant or high-level risks that you identified um, when you were doing your research. And um, yeah, and I'm wondering how, if if there are any ways that you could also, you, you were able to observe how, how to reduce or mitigate, you know, some of these risks for people who, who are interested in using psychedelics and, and might not even have access to these clinical trials at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, the main, the main things, like I said, in, in an acute setting, 
are, you know, the transient anxiety, discomfort that's been highly reported in the studies. You know, people will feel, you know, some, some you know, frank emotional distress and affect liability. So people are going through, you know, they're, see, they're having insights or having experiences or seeing things or experience sensations because essentially they're their brain is switched out of this default mode network into a more global connection where there's a lot of confusion in the processing and how people are interpreting visual stimuli, sensory stimuli. So that can be, you know, disconcerting and certainly for someone who's never experienced it, that that their consciousness could be so altered. Um, that could be, you know, concerning in the moment. But then as you can see in the studies, anxiety overall anxiety and things go down so it's really a lot about containing the the person during the session itself um the other thing that we look for medically and has been a bit of a rule out for most of the trials is any underlying cardiovascular risk because certainly the 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 medication itself can increase blood pressure that's been reliably demonstrated in the in the clinical trials and so if someone has some underlying you know heart arrhythmias or you know very uncontrolled hypertension things like that those would be concerning for people to use um, and those those tend to peak at you know the two hour time point after psilocybin administration and people can have you know, some elevations, not outside of the range of what you could get with um, exercise, some heavy exercise and things, but, you know, some people have more more delicate cardiac situations. So that's one thing that we're concerned about and looking at that. And with some of these um, psychiatric side effects, especially, you know, the potential to experience psychosis, um, do, do you know within psilocybin if that is affected or impacted by dose? And uh, I'm asking partly because I, I we just did an episode on, on ketamine and um, the, the dosing is super critical. It, it seems appears to be in terms of um, being able to have antidepressant effects at a low dose and then essentially it, it can tend to induce psychosis at a high dose. So with psilocybin, do you think there is that same um, critical importance of measuring the dose in order to, to mitigate these potential side effects? Or do you think it's a little bit of a softer, easier substance than, than ketamine potentially? Um, no, I mean, I think you're more likely to have uh, what we would consider uh, psychotic type symptoms with, with psilocybin. Um, it also seems to disrupt your short-term memory a lot as well. And so it's hard to really be remembering, like people just have insight after insight. And there can be cases like in, in the trials um, at, where you see someone who's completely non-responsive to the environment, but their internal state, they said that they were you know, very fearful or having a lot of paranoid thoughts or weren't sure what was going on. So it, it, I would say psilocybin is more likely to do that. And we actually intentionally put people into that state. And I actually, there, I've seen some data for ketamine with the, there's a, a paper by Glue that actually found some of the higher dosing has been more effective for antidepressant effects. 
And I mean, higher dosing is all relative. So I'm not talking about dosing of anesthesia per ketamine, which is, you know, getting to five milligram to 10 milligram per kilogram, still within this 0.5 to one or 1.25 milligram. So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the trials with ketamine have been 0.5 milligram per kilogram, which ends up being, you know, for the average person, like 35 milligram intramuscular could be one way to, to get that. But a lot of people here in the Bay have been doing doses of 100 milligrams um, IM. To, and, and there is something about getting person into a state where they're still understanding what's happening, but they're having all these insights. So there is sort of a psychedelic dosing range of ketamine as well. Um, but psilocybin studies are very reliably putting you into a full psychedelic or, you know, as they measure it, mystical experience. The majority of people do have that sort of experience with the, within these trials. And do you think that that is important in order to have these, um, you know, some of these effects that we talk about, the, the plasticity in the brain or, you know, being able to change your um, functional connectivity? Is that really, does that only really happen at a high dose level? based on kind of the, the research that you've done and the studies you've looked at? Yeah, it does tend, it does tend to happen at, at the higher doses um, in general, that people are more likely to have stronger subjective effects as you increase the dose. And the, a, a few of the studies have demonstrated that people who had this higher rating on the mystical experience rating scale had better symptomatic improvement. There was a correlation um, in, in those studies. And so I think there is something to that. I think there's something to having these breakthroughs or ego dissolution. The Imperial College of London has looked, and there's different ways to, to, to talk about it because mystical is sort of a loaded term in terms of what that would mean or What's the lens that that's through? There's other ways to think about it as just insight scale or ego dissolution scale. Um, one scale that I'm really interested in is, is decreased rumination that there's been a couple papers on as being an interesting way to think about what happens is as you sort of knock these neural networks into a new state, um, people report decreased rumination and that is something that to me is so fundamental when I see patients for depression or anxiety or substance use disorders, that seems to be something that's so consistent that people just can't, they don't want to keep thinking these thoughts, but they can't stop thinking the thoughts. So that means you're just kind of stuck on one singular loop of that's thought, right. whether that be an obsession with, with alcohol or, or you know some sort of addiction or OCD. I mean, that can manifest in so many so many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. That, that this, this recurring thought, you know, negative thoughts, feeling of guilt, worthlessness, or any slight is, is interpreted or it takes people longer to recover. Like, you know, someone doesn't get invited to something and then they think about that for the next couple of days. Whereas in some of these trials, maybe they say, yeah, that, you know, some, someone said something, but it didn't really bother me as much. So you know, they, I think there's really something to that from a, a mechanism of what what's happening therapeutically. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And 
this might be this might be um, outside of the the scope of this conversation, but but I do wonder: Do you have any theories or on why we are as humans why why we are wired to have such high levels of rumination, and why you know obviously it's it's so great that we have these substances that can de- decrease that, but but why why do we even come to the table with so so many of these destructive thoughts? Well, it's interesting because I've recently heard Robin Carhurst talk about this, and um, there even just serotonin in the absence of any psychedelics. So we're not talking about any psychedelics at this time. The a, a chronic or some sort of stressor. So in animal models and things where they can just produce a stress, there will be a spike in serotonin, and so this idea is that the potentially the serotonin 2A receptor could be trying to formulate an adaptive response when things are stressed. Um, But I would argue that our society has created a lot of stressors that didn't exist. So we're in a way superseding sort of a natural biologic evolution by the fact of the way that we've approached our relationship with nature. And so I think there, it's not, it's not a, surprising that the most sort of industrialized countries are having the highest rates of these psychiatric disorders and illnesses. Yeah, that was going to be, that was going to be my theory as well in terms of just the more, the more developed our civilizations get and the less the imminent threat of survival is Mm -hmm. then, yeah, of course there's just more energy to kind of put towards these, these other um, experiences. Yeah, and there's so many new things in our environment, right? That we've created this system where there's always new things, new ideas, new stressors at, at all time points. It's not just sort of, okay, today we all, you know, we almost got attacked by this, so we need to learn a new new way to to you know avoid that from happening in the future. Um, that might have been the original intention. And you know, our humans have survived because of human connection, and the way that, at least in, in America, the way that we've approached that is to uh, major disruptions in in social connection. For example, during COVID, we've seen you know uh, psychiatric illness rates essentially triple um, during this past year. When you look at epidemiologic data that the the CDC is reporting and things, so. Anxiety disorders are going up to suppression, and certainly there's a relationship between some sort of stressors and increased risk for things like depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think just the way that we have also evolved to to live as a civilization, you know, very disconnected from the the tribal model where we're living often in nuclear family units or so many people, more people are living alone outside of their families or, mm-hmm. you know, in other states, countries. And yeah, I, I think Absolutely. that really creates this, this sense, of course, once we're isolated from, from other humans, but, but also just, you know, a profound disconnect from, from the natural world as well through what mm-hmm. we eat. And, um, yep. So, um, but yeah, but, but let's get back to, to this chapter in terms of, because we, we did talk about some of these acute effects but what chronic or, or long-term side effects do you think um, do you think do exist with psilocybin or um, any of these other psychedelics that you are looking at through your your research? 
Well, the one the one effect that has been reported occasionally is this hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder, which is really really kind of a fascinating concept that some people just have. You know, it's it seems to be more common in regular users of psychedelics that you know the the more utilization you have of it the more risk of these sort of very brief flashbacks in the type one form of hppd but then in the type two form you might have more of these visual like people talk about visual snow things like that which doesn't seem to happen as much Um, so that's something that's been kind of kind of an interesting thing of these abnormal visual experiences that persist long after the, um, the, you know, the experiences with the psychedelics. But interestingly, um, a small percentage of people are distressed by it. So like in there's this one large survey study by uh, Matthew Baggett, where he looked at people reporting drug-free abnormal visual experiences after on a constant or near constant basis of like trails or movement or just just some abnormal visual things. About 24% of people reported that in this survey, which obviously is going to be somewhat biased because it's asking about these things and people who are regular users. But only 4% were distressed by it and only 1% ever sought treatment for it. So, you know, people do have it, but people don't seem to be very distressed about it. Um, and then that's the interesting. And did they report, did they report when they, so I'm assuming these were kind of visual hallucinations that might be similar to something you'd experience while you were on the trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they'd be like slight visual distortion. So not, you know, you're not having like a, frank hallucination where it seems like someone's in the room talking to you or hearing voices or any of that. It's more just like trailers or little, you know, visual snow. People sometimes call it just something in the visual field that looks a little different. Yeah. My follow-up on that too is how long do, so, so, and let's focus on psilocybin or, or maybe LSD as well. How long do these substances actually stay in our bloodstream? And were these people reporting those symptoms kind of immediately after or long term, you know, several weeks, several months? Yeah, this would be, this would be um, visual disturbances over months and years. It was this particular situation. Um, But again, they didn't, you know, necessarily quantify it or stratify it by the number of uses of the psychedelic and things like that. But yeah, the the drug itself is rapidly metabolized um, from your body. So psilocybin is essentially completely gone from your body in less than 48 hours, about, you know, 20 hours or so. It's complete, uh, completely metabolized. Um, and then within, with the LSD, a little bit longer, but not much. In terms of in terms of its half life, so these drugs are gone. But one of the interesting things about LSD is that it has such an interesting stickiness to the binding pocket that David Nichols has done a lot of uh, work on understanding that. And so there does seem to be some that's still having activity, even though the the drug has been metabolized um, from the body. 
So there's mm-hmm. a little bit of difference there. So they have pretty similar half-lives of around five hours or so, which essentially four or five times five is, is about a day. Um, so they're gone from your bloodstream in terms of detectable. You can detect some metabolites, but the active thing is gone. But the LSD can sort of stay in this binding pocket even longer, which is, which is interesting. It's, yeah, it's very interesting. And, it, and it's interesting to me that only 4% found themselves disturbed by it. Um, because it, this could also be, I mean, it's framed as a, a potential adverse side effect in this context, but that could also be considered a positive thing too. If you had some sort, you know, a nostalgia, of, if you had a, let's say you had a positive experience with the psychedelic, if there were some, let's say some sort of visual or maybe a sound um, that could um, evoke a memory from this psychedelic experience from this trip, that, that could actually be um, that could actually be a positive thing, not necessarily that, a side effect. That is exactly what some people reported, that they actually did not mind it because it was so mild and then they would, you know, it, it pr- kind of brought them back into the present or that experience. So yeah, that that is consistent with what some people would say about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so there are, of course, there are these potential side effects. Um, and, and I know you operate also from a harm reduction approach. So how do you see some of these potential adverse effects from this risk-reward point of view? So if someone, and let's say, I think psychedelics would be extremely, extremely useful to especially older older people who are maybe facing some anxiety about the end of their lives. Um, but but how, how would you maybe cushion some of these side effects um, to someone who was um, curious about psychedelics, but but just nervous, or or you know has been reading all of this propaganda from the government for for decades, and and isn't necessarily um, j- just has some fears around some of these potential side effects and and what's what's real, but but what also could be um, useful to them. Yeah. So. With with psilocybin, I mean, I think the risks compared to our, you know, if you looked at all of the medications available, it is an incredibly safe drug um, in, in a macro dose format. The other thing to consider is if you're only getting, you know, one or two doses and getting those benefits, that really limits any risks, essentially. So the risks are essentially contained just to that acute experience. And when you're doing a single dose, there's really no chronic risk, it doesn't seem like. And even in the HPPD, most of the people that are reporting this were very consistent, heavy users of psychedelics and not sort of a single dose, one-off. Although I'm sure there are people who have done one dose and have experienced something like HPPD, it's not common. Or someone who's taken a dose of a psychedelic and has had more psychological instability after it, some people will call that a spiritual emergency. Um, So it can be some destabilization for some people. um, But overall, the evidence, if, if you have these therapeutic containers where you have people that are there supporting you, there's preparation, you're working with therapists, et cetera. I think the, the risks are very low and it's a very safe molecule in that respect. The only thing, I'm, like I said, I'm concerned about is 
is acute changes in, in cardiac conduction and heart rates for certain people that have underlying conditions. That's really the main thing that I think about right now, which is a whole different scenario than the microdosing question. That's a whole different question. So in the case of microdosing, people are taking the drug repeatedly for extended periods of time. And that is where I'm worried about another receptor called the serotonin 2B receptor, which has reliably been linked to valvular heart disease, Mm -hmm. which is often picked up on a test called echocardiography. And to, to this point of, you know, I've had a lot of pushback from people that this shouldn't be a problem. And it may not be with psilocybin in particular, I'm more worried about LSD microdosing for causing this effect than psilocybin based on some unpublished data that I've seen presented of it doesn't have certain types of agonism. But I Mm -hmm. still want to see these sort of classic in vitro models of looking at cell, you know, looking in cell cultures and seeing does it trigger these uh, fibroblasts to change in valvular heart disease? Is it something called mitogenic? And so that's what I'm, I'm concerned about. Because even in one study, people that were taking MDMA for many years on average, the mean, I think, was 3.6 pills per week. About a quarter of those people had a detectable valvular heart disease. And so that's something with people you know, microdosing for months and years, right. I'm concerned that we might start to see more reports of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's dive into that a little bit more because I do think microdosing is very trendy right now. And I, I know you're in the Bay Area and I, I, I've heard that it's a very big thing also in kind of Silicon Valley culture, um, especially kind of TV using for enhanced like creativity or productivity hacking. So first of all, what is the difference? And we can focus on psilocybin or, or LSD, but, but what is the difference in dosing actually? So I think you had said about around three grams is considered for psilocybin yeah. is yeah, so that two, macro dose, that high level therapeutic dose. And, wh- and what is a microdose? And a microdose would be like 0.1 to 0.2 milligram, uh, mm-hmm. grams. Uh, and people who so, are microdosing are typically doing it every day, multiple times a week. So usually, I mean, the, the mo- probably the most commonly used, I would say, is the Fatiman protocol, which is to take, you know, 0.1 to 0.2 grams uh, one day, then off two days, and then again. So essentially one day on, two days off for a 30-day cycle. And what do you think is the difference in this experience um, compared to the, the macro dose for, for individuals. Why, yeah, why are people drawn to this over kind of, you know, doing those more, those higher doses every once in a while? Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not quite sure. I know people report they feel sort of like an energy boost or they feel like a little bit more cognitive flexibility, which could be true. Uh, no one's ever done a study of Silicon Valley tech people's default mode network versus the general population. Maybe they have more tightly constrained neural networks than other people based on the way they approach problems or think about coding. I don't know. Um, But I think that would be fascinating to look at if they are seeing some benefit that the general population is not hard to say. 
but yeah, they, they often feel sort of mood boost, but to be quite honest, there was recently an Imperial College of London, big, huge, one of the largest studies. Granted, it was self-blinding, and we don't know exactly how much drug they were taking because there was no quantification, but people were getting access to LSD or psilocybin on their own means and doing microdosing, and they found that both the placebo group and the psilocybin or LSD microdosing groups both improved in you know their all the psychological outcomes that they thought they would improve on or wanted to improve on, but they were no different. So the placebo, you if you were dosing a placebo every third day and expected that effect, you were also getting positive psychological effects. Oh wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that's I- our best data, I would say, to date of showing that. Yes, it is true, but you could also be taking placebo water and experience the same effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so I do think, and um, I, I do think it's really important to to identify that there are there are a lot of uncertainties and unknowns when it does come to taking these um, substances on a semi regular basis, even at this small dose level. That's right. Yeah. So people have kind of tried to transpose this idea that oh, well, uh, people took a couple macro doses, therefore that was effective and safe. So if I take this, but it's a very different pharmacologic premise. Anytime you're introducing an exogenous substance repeatedly, uh, that has different effects on your body's homeostasis and receptor effects than a single dose and then not taking it again. Yeah, and I do wonder too, I think humans are really remarkable at taking substances, especially plant-based substances that have been used um, for thousands of years in, in these ceremonial settings and then just, yeah, transposing them so that they can be used every day um, mm-hmm. or every other, third, or on this like regular model. I mean, it's the pharmaceutical model. It's the tobacco model. It's, right. um, we've just seen this happen across, you know, we've seen this happen so many times again. Um, so, yeah. So, so I, I do wonder, I don't necessarily, obviously, we, it, there's so much uncertainty on whether this could be effective in terms of treating um, depression or in, enhancing creativity. So I don't want to say that um, it's, it's, a, it's a bad thing or we don't know where this will go, but, but definitely, yeah, it sounds like based on your research that people should, should really tread with caution when they're pursuing this path. Yeah, I think there there's clinical trials that are happening right now. And so, it'll, uh, you know, I, I just want to see the data. That's, that's really how I think about things is, and I would just want people to be informed that something they're doing may have actual cardiac risks. I mean, my, the nightmare for me is that all of a sudden all these people are having heart damage, you know, two or three years after, you know, thousands of people start to microdose. So that would be, if, if a quarter of the people develop that, that would be a big problem for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, and one other thing that uh, we skipped over, but I really did want to talk about was potential drug interactions when it comes to using psychedelics. And if we were to specifically focus on psilocybin, what potential drug um, drug interactions might be problematic? Or, you know, if someone is taking certain types of medication or drugs, what should they be really cautious about before 
um, you know, using psychedelics, using psilocybin, and, and also uh, uh, to, to go into that even a little bit further, are, are there any drugs that you're aware of that might lessen the effects or the experience of a psychedelic? Yeah, so um, certainly with, with MDMA, a paper just came out showing that people who were recently taking uh, antidepressants seem to have less of a response to the MDMA-assisted therapy. And that's something that in some, some more of like a case series type of report done by uh, Kit Bonson, she had looked at the effects of people who were taking an SSRI and if that seemed to lessen the effect of LSD. Uh, but we really don't have data yet with psilocybin. I haven't seen any data yet. And so that's something that I think will be important to understand is, is recent SSRI exposure, SNRI exposure going to diminish the effects of psilocybin? And anecdotally, people say that it does. Um, but by how much? And will that negate people's depression outcomes? We don't know. So those are, uh, those are unknowns, I would say, is, and important questions to answer because if this becomes integrated into our mental health care systems, we're going to have to have, find ways to deal with our existing therapeutics and how to think about how you taper or how, how much do we have to taper because people that are, that are experiencing a lot heavy anxiety or depression, they may decompensate if they stop their, their antidepressants. So there's been a lot of self-selection for the clinical trials of people that have either not gotten much benefit or are just not interested in SSRIs, things like that. But how that's going to be generalizable to all depression cases remains a question that we need to answer. The good news from like a classic drug-drug interaction, pharmacokinetic standpoint, there doesn't seem to be too much of a, a risk. There's only a few drugs that inhibit these UGT 1A9 and 1A10 enzymes, so-called glucuronidation uh, metabolism enzymes. So like something like diclofenac is a nonsteroidal antidepressant. Um, a, a newer anti-diabetes medication in Vokana may, may increase. But again, these are all just sort of slightly probably going to increase the concentration of psilocin in the body. And that might not be that bad. You know, they just would be getting a slightly higher dose than what we expected, especially in a macrodose model where they're only going to get a dose or two of it. Um, so really from a drug interaction standpoint, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to manage. I think the bigger question is going to be around the psychiatric medications that such as atypical antipsychotics that are being used in depression augmentation, those would actually block the effects of psilocybin. So those would have to be tapered off before. So things that are directly acting at the serotonin 2A receptor and blocking it, which involves uh, quite a few psychiatric medications and ones that we don't really even think about, one that psychiatrists wouldn't think of having that activity. A lot of times with psychiatric medications, there's a lot of off-target pharmacology that is just not what the, the drug company was studying, so it doesn't really get well studied. Um, but they, the labs like the um, at UNC 
the Roth lab does a lot of their, there's a database called PDSP where you can look up, you know, any type of drug and how it binds to a variety of receptors. So we need to keep looking at those type of off target effects to understand. But so the psychiatric medications are, we're going to have to do some sort of skipping doses or tapering or else some of those atypical antipsychotics and some, even some of the antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs may have competition at that receptor. And so we'd probably have to stop those to see beneficial effects. Right. That makes so much sense. So my final question for you is what are you most excited about in your research moving forward? And what do you most want to um, learn or, or know about psilocybin or, or maybe psychedelics in general and how we can be using them as medicine? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what, what it comes down to is I'm really interested in, in understanding these therapeutic mechanisms. Like I said, I'm really fascinated by this concept of hyperconnectivity and the default mode network being related to rumination and not being able to get out of these repetitive thought patterns. So that's something that fascinates me. And then in terms of applications, the palliative care setting to me is such a, I feel like in America, people die so horribly the way that our healthcare systems approach it. We just spend all these millions of dollars at people's, you know, last few weeks or month of life instead of looking at the overall quality of life throughout the, the healthcare continuum. And so I'd really like to see a, a better approach to palliative care. And I think psilocybin could be a very powerful tool for palliative care um, and our approach to, to that. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time and yeah, sharing all of this, this um, great wisdom and information with us. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.